Our scripture reading for this morning comes from selected passages from Exodus chapters 5 through 10, as printed in your bulletin. Chapter 5, verses 2. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Chapter 7, verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the water. Wait on the bank of the Nile to meet him, and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, Let my people go, so that they may worship me in the desert. But until now you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die, and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. Chapter 10, verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky, so that darkness will spread over Egypt, darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky, and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or leave his place for three days. Yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, Go, worship the Lord. Even your women and children may go with you. Only leave your flocks and herds behind. But Moses said, You must allow us to have sacrifices and burnt offerings to present to the Lord our God. Our livestock, too, must go with us. Not a hoof is to be left behind. We have to use some of them in worshiping the Lord our God. And until we get there, we will not know what we are to use to worship the Lord. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. Pharaoh said to Moses, Get out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face, you will die. Just as you say, Moses replied, I will never appear before you again. This is the word of the Lord. We've been looking at the life of Moses in the book of Exodus, and we come to this famous narrative. Uh, But it's a challenge because it spans uh, many chapters. We're going into the plagues of Egypt here. And I want to give you a little bit of a background First, you have Moses, who was raised in royalty in Egypt, but he had taken this tremendous detour in life. He committed a capital crime, and so now he's left in the desert, and he's in the wilderness, and he's, in a sense, on the run. But in the desert, he encounters God, the real God, and God sends Moses back to Pharaoh in Egypt after years and decades with this message, let my people go that they, may worship, that they might worship me. Now, the first time Pharaoh hears this message, we just read this in the text that Charlotte read to you. The first time Pharaoh hears this message from Moses, it's in chapter 5, verse 2. Pharaoh responds and he says, who is the Lord that I should obey him? And that's what triggers the plagues. Chapters 5 through 10 spans five or six chapters. That's what triggers the plagues. Pharaoh asks this question, who is the Lord that I should obey him? What are the plagues? What do they mean? Because a lot of people that we know have left the church because they dislike this God of judgment. They don't like to hear about this God that just smites people. 
But you have to see that that's too superficial of a reason. The plagues answer this question, why should we obey God? Why should we obey? Just like Pharaoh, he says, who is the Lord that I should obey him? And there are three answers as to why we should obey. First, because God is a singular God. He says, there are none like me. Two, second, is that he is the creator God. He is the designer of our, of our lives, and that makes him king. And lastly, because he is the redeemer God, because he saves, and all the plagues are intended to save. Because he is singular, because he is creator, because he is redeemer. First, we're going to look at because he is a singular God, because he says there's none like me in all the earth. When Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I should obey him? Who is the Lord that I should obey? He's not saying that because he's an atheist. He said this because he lived in a culture, he lived in an era where they believed in many gods. Mainly what he's saying is this, you have your understanding of God, I have my understanding of God. Who are you to impose your views on me? Does that sound familiar to you? Does that sound familiar? Most people today believe that. Most people today feel that way. So the first plague, very intentional, very carefully chosen, very intentional, the judging of the River Nile, that's what we call it, very carefully chosen. Why? Because the Nile River was what? The Nile River to the Egyptians was a god. They worshipped the Nile River. The Nile River was a source of life, the source of commerce and finance, the source of all of their food and their income in Egypt. So it was worshipped by the Egyptians. So what does God do? He turns the river to blood, death judgment the second thing the second to the last plague you see now the bookends you see the first plague there were 10 plagues the first plague and just before the climactic uh, plague the 10th plague you have this ninth one god turns the entire land into darkness it says complete darkness why because the sun and the moon you have these ancient stories of osiris and isis the gods of the sun and the moon the egyptians worshiped the sun they worshiped the moon so what does god do he makes it go dark. Verse, chapter 7, verse 17. By this they will know that I am the Lord. And then chapter 9, right before the hailstorm, God says that they may know there is none like me in all the earth. Now we say, you have your God, I have mine. There's no way. God says, no way. I am unique. I am singular. There is none like me in all the earth. He's saying, I am bigger, I am more powerful, I am real. The other gods, they're not real, I am real. He's a singular God. Now, the second point, God says, God is the creator God. That makes him the designer of our lives, the designer of our world, the designer of our souls. One of the things that people notice in this text, <clears throat> when they're studying this part of Exodus, they notice that, in a sense, the plagues, they were very, you know, if you look at movies, they're, de- they're depicted as incredibly dramatic. But in another sense, they're not very special. For example, you have the first plague, the Nile, the smiting of the Nile River. No one can drink the Nile. God did something to the river. Scholars debate what really happened there in the water, but, you know, whether you're a liberal scholar or a conservative scholar, they debate that. But no matter what, It destroyed the ecosystem of the Nile. And most of the plagues really cascade from that first plague. So you have this first plague, the Nile becomes unlivable, uninhabitable. And so what happens? The frogs that are living in the Nile start to come out. 
And that's the second plague. You have the plague of frogs. The frogs come out. They all start to die. They die in the people's homes. They die in the palace. They're dying in the streets, right? And so as a result, because they die, because of that first plague, you have the second plague. And as a result of the second plague, what happens? You have all this death, all these rotting frogs. The gnats come and the flies come. So you have the third plague and the fourth plague. All natural right now, right? This, this ecological disaster, this environmental disaster. And then, because you have the gnats and because you have the flies, what happens? The fifth and sixth plagues. The livestock. An epidemic sweeps the livestock. And then the boils, the, an epidemic sweeps the people. So there's this tremendous, uh, these natural disasters that happen, the skin diseases. You have, you have the fifth and sixth plague. And then you have the hailstorm. Then you have the locusts. And then you have darkness, seven, eight, and nine. All natural Most of them are consequential, a cascade from the first plague. Now, if God's purpose was just to prove to the Pharaoh, just to prove to the Egyptians, I exist, and my power, I have a lot of power, he could have done a lot of other things. God could have done a lot more things that are almost magical in nature to prove who he was. Moses could have walked right into the palace, right from the beginning, because he doesn't do that. Right from the beginning, he could have walked into the palace He could have rolled up his sleeves and he says, okay, I've been sent by this God, this all-powerful supreme God has sent me and I want you to know today that he is real and he is live. And then boom, he set an official on fire and then turned to the Pharaoh and says, you better bow or you are next. The Pharaoh would have obliged. Wouldn't you think? He would have obliged. The Pharaoh would have surrendered. Why does he wait until almost the very end of all the plagues to come to Pharaoh? And here's why. These plagues, they're more than just disasters. They're more than just acts of power by God. They have a message. What is the message? The scholars have noted for decades, actually for a long time now, that if you actually read this text intently, in Exodus chapter 5 through 10, which are really encapsulate the bookends of the 10 plagues, if you look at those texts, those passages, and read them, it's really an undoing of Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the creation account. The 10 plagues in Egypt are an undoing of what happens in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. So yes, it's supernatural. Yes, God is at work. But really, what does it mean? What you see here is this, the 10 plagues. It's nature run amok. Nature out of control. Life has gone completely out of control. Nature is breaking down. Things are eating each other, eating itself. Things are reverting back into chaos until there's darkness. Darkness before creation began. Now, what's Genesis chapter 1 and 2? If you read the first book of the Bible, the first two chapters of the first book of the Bible, God takes these elements. He takes the sun and the moon. He takes light. And then he takes uh, the, the land and the sea and the sky. And then he takes these animals and plants. And then he takes man and woman. And he turns them, what? He turns the entire world, the entire known universe, into this integrated, coherent whole. There's this harmony. There's this balance. Nature is humming absolutely beautifully, all at one with each other. But here, you have exactly the opposite. That's the exact opposite of what's taking place here in Exodus chapters 5 to 10. Order, everything that we know in order... If you were a king in Egypt, looking out, all that you know of the natural world, all that you know about this beautiful creation that you see, the vast beauties of creation that you see, is becoming undone. The weather is destroying each other. The weather is destroying the animals. The animals and the insects are destroying the plants. And the, you know, ultimately, the people are infected and, and everyone is suffering. 
And you go on and on until what? Everything is breaking down piece by piece until you get to the ninth plague, there's darkness. It's really a reverse of what's happening in, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, it reads like this, the earth was without form and void. In other words, there's chaos. And what? Darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Water represents chaos in the Bible. And if you look at the Old Testament, water in particular represents this mysterious, enigmatic, unknown, uncertain darkness. Because they didn't know what was in the water. They didn't know what Leviathans resided in the water. They didn't know how storms started. So water was this this uncontrollable chaos. And what happens? You see darkness and you see water. There's darkness and chaos. When the Spirit of God comes, what happens? In Genesis chapter 1, there is light. There's order. There is this harmony in nature. You see that? But what we learn from the plagues is very important because what God is saying is this. My power, my word, my law, it's an authority. It's critical for us to obey. Everything I do, everything I tell you to do, it's incredibly important for you to obey because it's natural. That's how you were designed. It teaches, to obey is to learn and to understand how to live according to the design in which you were created by, the design in which you were created in. And every time you disobey, what happens? There are consequences that are natural, not unnatural. Just as you were created naturally by me, Disobeying me creates natural consequences. Natural things are of consequential nature. It's a part of your design. You cascade into disorder. You cascade, your life cascades into chaos. Think about this. Imagine in creation, Genesis chapter 1. Imagine if it went like this. God says, let there be light. And then God says, let there be, he creates the sun and the moon. And the sun and the moon say, no, no way. I refuse. What happens? There is darkness. There is chaos. There is rebellion. That's what's happening. God is saying through the plagues, I get it. I get you guys. You think you're a king because you own a home. You think you're a king because people call you director. You think you're a king because you own something, because you're a father, because people say you're creative. You see, I am the owner. I am the governor. I am the father, and I am creator. So who gave you your job? Who gave you your job? Who gave you your money and your bank account? Who gave you your looks? Did you create that? Who gave you your intelligence? Did you create that? Who gave you your relationships? Do you think you earned that? Who gave you your family? Who gave you your children? That is God coming to us as lesser kings. Disobey me you will unleash the forces of chaos and disorder in your life and everything around you because you're violating your design. That's why we have the law. Even as Christians, that's why we have the law. Because what is the law? Being a Christian, um, it doesn't make you free from your design any more than it makes a fish now be able to walk on land and breathe air. Being a Christian allows you to live freely in your design. Because you're made to live in that design. That's what gives you true joy. It helps you to understand and see your design. Appreciate the design. Embrace the design. Live according to the design. Affirm the design. If you disobey that, what happens? Natural chaos. There's darkness. Natural disorder. Entropy. Darkness. You're going to feel it. You're going to experience it. 
it's going to plague you. It's going to plague you. Your life is going to corrode. There will be an epidemic that runs through outside and in, into your soul, until in the end, there is ultimate darkness. I'm going to give you an example. I go to a doctor. My doctor is a friend of mine from high school, believe it or not, and it's because I figured if I choose him, he's going to tell it to me straight. He's going to give it to me straight anytime. Suppose my doctor comes to me and he says, you really got to stop eating fatty foods. You got to stop eating Krispy Kremes. You got to stop taking in sugar the way you do. You got to stop drinking soda. Stop eating the spicy foods. It's creating gastritis in your, in your body. You got to stop eating steaks the way you consume steaks. You need to run more. You need to exercise more. You need to stop overworking. You wor- I could tell just from you have hypertension, you have strain. Now, when I hear that, I don't like it. <laughs> I certainly don't like it. it. It actually hurts. But if I disobey, I'm not going to go to jail for disobeying that, right? No one's going to arrest me for disobeying. But it's very important to listen to my doctor. Why? Because he's an authority in that area. And so his directives are what? He's really directing me in accordance with the nature of my design, the nature of my being. He's trying to show me a way to live in a way that honors the fabric of the way that I was created. And so if I obey those directives, I will thrive. I will flourish. I will, I will live free. I'm not going to go to jail if I disobey. We understand that. But suppose I, I don't stop eating fatty foods. Suppose I say, you know what? You know, you're just trying to push your medical degree on me. I'm going to eat even more Krispy Kremes. I'm going to eat even more sugar. I'm going to drink soda like crazy. I'm going to drink soda, guarana, everything I want. I'm just going to keep drinking that, right? I'm going to take, I'm going to eat gummy bears. I'm going to eat even the sugar-free gummy bears. I'm just going to eat everything, right? I'm just going to go crazy with those things, right? What if I do that? What if I just, you know what? Spicy foods, I'm just going to eat spice. I'm just going to start eating spice like cereal. What if I do that, right? Suppose I don't stop eating steak. Suppose I don't run. Suppose I don't exercise. I'm just going to continue overworking because I just love my work. I'm just going to keep working and working. I have to work. I have to make money. I have to fill my bank account. You know what's going to happen? I'm not going to go to jail. But my life, my family, my relationships, the things that I embrace in the world that make life start to unravel, that's what's going to happen. That's what's going to happen. My life starts to unravel. My design will ultimately explode, literally explode into chaos. Just like the plays, it's going to begin. I'm going to start to put on some weight. And then uh, I get tested and I start to have high cholesterol. And then it's going to make me sluggish. And it's going to make me lethargic. And, you know, because I put on some weight, I'm going to start snoring at night. And it's going to make me restless as a result. And uh, as a result, my wife is going to be restless because of my snoring. And then what's going to happen? I'm going to keep overworking. There's going to be hypertension. And it's going to be strain and backache until what happens? A heart attack. A stroke. You see, God's authority is kind of like that. I say kind of like that because he's not just an authority. He is the author. He is creator. He knows every dimension, every nuance. He knows every part of your coherence, your physical coherence, emotional, your psychological, your social, your sexual, your spiritual, everything. So why should we obey God? God is speaking to you not just simply as your king, saying you better obey because I'm bigger than you. I'm ordering you because I'm bigger than you. That's not what he's saying. God's rules are, yes, because he's maker, which means what he says reflects how we're created. What he says reflects how we're designed. 
And, and you can't, he begins with what? You will have no other gods before me. That's what he says. In other words, you can't just come to church occasionally. You can't just come at your own time. You can't just say, yeah, I believe in God. I believe there's a God. God has to be greater and more important than anything you have or you know. God has to be, has to be more important to you than your family. God has to be more important to you than your job or your career. God has to be more important to you than your work. God has to be more important to you than your bank account. More important than anything that you've got, your children, your wife or your husband. Your li- God has to be the, mo- the utmost. He says, you have to build your identity on me. It has to be more important than anything else that you have or that you own. And if you don't, do you want to know why people fall into misery? It's not because God is like some cosmic loan shark and he kind of waits there and he says, you know what, They're not, that person's not obeying. I'm going to go and break his legs. That's not what's happening. He doesn't say, well, you know, why I ought to. You know, that's not what he does. You're miserable because you have chosen to abandon your design. Now, we don't say outright, I abandon God's design. It happens slowly. It happens subtly. We say, well, I've, I've been placed by God, has placed me in charge of my children. And so in many ways, you justify putting them above all things. It's natural. It is natural. But it is naturally against your design. And what happens is when you do that, life starts to unravel. The very children that you want to raise up, when they see that you don't live life valuing God, why would they? You are actually disobeying the calling that you have to raise your children well. Your design will explode. There's going to be cosmic disintegration. You know what's incredibly pathetic about the human condition? Um, We refuse God. You know, Pharaoh, uh, it says in this text as we read, his heart was hard. And so what happens is the pathetic part about the human condition is that we refuse God. I mean, this is not a neighbor, right? We're refusing God's wisdom. And what we end up doing is we end up clinging to needy things, needy beings like our children as our primary source of worth. We refuse God as our source of worth, and we go to these little beings that are so needy and clingy, and we cling to them because they are our hopes for getting a sense of worth. Do you understand that? That's how pathetic the human condition is. That's how we are. We crave wealth in the same way. We get online, we check that bank account, see how much, you know, we, we've risen even in the last day. That's what we do. We cling to those things. We've abandoned God and his wisdom, and we cling to these things to give us a sense of worth. Because if there's an uptick, then your day is good. And if there's a downtick, then your day is bad. Do you see how pathetically controlled we are? So that we can say, yes, now I have buying power. Tomorrow I will do even better. What if you make your work more important than God, and you overwork for years and years and years, first of all, what happens is your family falls apart. You're going to become irrelevant in your family. You're going to disintegrate. Um, Something starts to threaten you at work, what happens? That combined with the fact that now your family is falling apart, you're going to emotionally start to disintegrate. Disintegration. And that's going to create lots of anxiety because now the very thing that you poured your life into it made you kind of lose your family and now your work's falling apart. So now there's emotional distress and there's family distress. What happens now? There's anxiety. Then anxiety leads to restlessness. Now you're going to physically disintegrate. 
You're going to emotionally disintegrate spiritually and psychologically. You're sitting there questioning your worth in life, your purpose, because everything that you've poured into is now falling apart around you. And there's no gratitude. There's no acknowledgement. There's no sense of clarity. There's only confusion. What's happening? There's the chaos. There's the disintegration. That's what's happening. And you feel like, yeah, you know what? I'm here. I'm doing it alone. I'm keeping everything together here. And you're tired and you're bitter and you're angry. What's happening? Spiritually, you're disintegrating. Just like Egypt, our plagues cascade consequentially. Life starts to return to chaos and misery and darkness. The very word disintegration is what? Things are falling apart because the coherence that is in the design, natural to that design, has disintegrated. At one time, it was integrated. Another time now, it has become disintegrated. You take this finely tuned German car, German engineering, fine German engineering. You rev that engine, and that engine hums beautifully. There's not a tick in that engine. You open up that engine, and you look, and all the cylinders are running properly. Everything is fine, finely tuned to perfection. And then you take, I don't know, you take a wrench, you open up that engine, and you throw a wrench in there. What happens? What was once incoherence, what was once integrated, becomes what? Disintegrated. Your car will run. Your car will run, but it won't hum. And eventually, it will break. And if you're in it, you will break. That's life. That's what happens. The world one time was put together in an integrated way. But since we've chosen to not live that way, we have basically disengaged. And as a result, we've gone against our design. We've actually gone against ourselves. And as a result, even within ourselves, there's disintegration. And uh, there are so many examples of this. Some of that is relational. We don't know how to forgive. Some of it's social. We don't know how to be generous. Some of it's political or civil. Some of it, you know, God is saying, if you disobey, creation begins to deconstruct. Order turns to entropy and chaos. And and that's life. That's natural until all of life ultimately comes to a halt because there is absolute darkness until the ultimate darkness. You know, the plagues, they're not magic. You know, they're not magic. It's about what holds the world together. What holds life together? That's the meaning of the plagues. What God's saying in the plagues is this, to be completely under my kingship, is to be fully alive, to thrive. But to move away from my rule is to destroy yourself and your life will unravel and cascade into chaos and darkness everywhere. You, everywhere around you. Now, if you take points one and two to heart and just leave at that, what's going to happen is you're going you're to try to obey. <laughs> but you're going to obey out of fear. Because your heart is still drawn to Krispy Kremes. And your heart is still drawn to sugars. And your heart still wants to not exercise. The change is not going to last. The first point was that <clears throat> there's none like God. God is a singular God. He is, the second point is that we have to live according to his design because he is the author. He is the creator. He is the designer. The last point is he is the redeeming God. An interesting thing about the plagues, scholars also note here that God seems to kind of be holding back. There are 10 plagues. It's not like he just comes through one wave and just wipes things out. He just sends things in short waves. And they're 
I want to say they're more than a nuisance, clearly. They're destructive. But it almost seems like God is pulling and he's holding back. He's pulling his punches. So these plagues, on one hand, are judgment, right? They're judgment. People, there are people in the United States, there are people even in the church who just love that because they're like, yes, this is judgment. This is what's going to happen to you if you don't believe. You know, and, and it seems like, yes, God is hammering Pharaoh. He's hammering Egypt into submission. But you have to, you, that's a misunderstanding of the text because why then in chapter 9, right before uh, the plague of ha- the hailstorm, God sends Moses to Pharaoh. He sends him towards Pharaoh. Towards the end of the plague, he sends Moses to Pharaoh And he said, and and Moses tells Pharaoh, here's what I want you to do. I need you to get the cattle, get your farmhands out of the field. God is sending Pharaoh, God is sending Moses to warn the Pharaoh. Get your farmhands out. Get your cattle back in. They're going to get hurt because something is coming and it's going to damage them. What kind of judge does that? What kind of judge that wants to hammer you into submission does that? I mean, isn't the purpose of the plagues death and mayhem and destruction? Isn't that the, and here's the answer. Only a redeeming God can do that. Only a compassionate judge. On one hand, he is judge, but he's a compassionate judge. He's a patient judge. He's holding back his punches. He's warning us. In fact, he sends and he says, hey, get your, get your people in. Yes, there's damage, but I want you to, I want you to be okay. Now, there are a whole lot of plagues, and the whole point of the plagues is what? Ultimately, it's to save. Now, you say, well, I don't understand. I mean, did not, did, did not destruction fall upon Egypt? Now, there are several ways that God uses the plagues to save. First, he saves his people. Clearly, the plagues were intended to save God's people. Because of the 10th plague, Moses was able to lead God's people safely out of Egypt, safely out of slavery, safely out of bondage. So we know that the plagues, through the plagues, through that judgment, God's people were saved. They were saved from slavery through judgment. And and we know that. Now, the second reason is because there's this place in chapter 9 where God says to Pharaoh, right in the midst of, of everything, he says, by now, I could have stretched out my hand and I could have struck you. He actually says that. I could have struck you and the people with a plague that wiped you off, wiped you off the earth. But I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power, and I show you my name, and that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. What's he saying? He's saying, you know, I could have wiped you out if I wanted to. If I wanted to show you how powerful I was, I would have wiped you out. But this story is going to go into another story That's going to be told to millions and not just save my people, but it will save many, many other people for centuries on. Through this story of salvation, through this revelation of God, and through this redemption in this book and all the Bible, really, the world is going to understand what sin is. They're going to understand what it means to be distant from me, and they're going to understand that salvation comes only from me, and they will be free. And so the plagues were really designed to wake us up. Because it wake the Egyptian up. You know, there's this place in chapter 9 where it says, after a while, the, the tides started to turn on the Pharaoh. The Egyptians began to fear the word of the Lord, it said, and they began to do the things that God was actually saying. 
The Egyptians, these people who Pharaoh, controlled by Pharaoh, owned, you know, represented everything that was against God, actually started to follow the words of the Lord. Now, in other words, God's approach to judgment is not salvation or judgment. It's not, it's not either or, but it's salvation through judgment. He judges in order to save. That's what, that's what I'm trying to say here. That's why he's unique. That's why he's so unique. And the story continues long after Moses because it continues centuries later when darkness, there was another darkness. There was another darkness that came. In Genesis chapter 1, darkness came, it said, over the deep, over the face of the deep. Before God creates the sun and moon and there was darkness, but then here in this last plague, what do you see? Darkness again. Everything is unraveled and now there's complete darkness across the land. Centuries later, centuries later, Jesus comes, not with plagues, Jesus Christ walks the earth, not with plagues, but what does he do? Miracles. He performs miracles. And what are these miracles? They are not magical things. In fact, they're very natural things. What he does is there's a blind man, he helps him to see. There's a lame man, he helps him to walk. There is a deaf or mute man, he helps him to hear, he helps him to speak. There's a paralyzed person, he helps him to walk freely. There are people who are stricken with illness, leprosy. He cleans them. Over and over you see through Jesus, not bringing plagues of judgment, but in his presence, he's restoring all that was broken to its natural design. So here you have in Exodus, God, God bringing things to its original, you know, because we've disobeyed his design, we've gone against his design, God brings darkness. But here, In the New Testament, here's Jesus now coming. Instead of bringing with him the plagues of judgment, he heals, he restores to their natural state, to their original design. What's the message of Christ? What is he doing? They weren't just displays of power. They were restorations of order, restorations of chaos. Things are disintegrating, and what is he doing? He's integrating them. The miracles are all about Jesus restoring life to their design until you get to the greatest miracle in all of history. In Matthew chapter 27, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over the land, it said. And at about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the earth shook and the rocks split. What's going on here? On the cross, Jesus Christ was alone and he's facing the wrath of God. And whereas in Exodus, God held back plague after plague. On the cross, Jesus faced the full wrath of God, and God didn't hold back. On the cross, all the plagues of God's judgment, all the wrath, all the display of God's power and his justice fell on Christ, and there was darkness. In other words, Jesus experienced the chaos. Jesus experienced the disintegration. Jesus experienced what it means to be cut off from God and what he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's saying, I'm forsaken. I'm experiencing the ultimate darkness, the ultimate chaos, the ultimate soul-ripping disintegration. My body is being torn apart, but my soul, my heart is being broken. If the Trinity represents the ultimate picture of integration, Father, Son, and Spirit in perfect harmony and integration, on the cross, the Trinity was being torn apart and disintegrated. Why did he do that? Jesus experienced the ultimate darkness because this, the cross, would be the ultimate exodus. 
If in Exodus, in the book of Exodus, the darkness came so that ultimately you would have the exodus of God's people in Egypt, from Egypt, from that slavery and bondage. The cross is the ultimate darkness that Jesus experienced so that we would experience the ultimate freedom from our bondage and slavery to sin. The ultimate exodus, the ultimate redemption. Jesus Christ suffered the plagues of judgment. Jesus Christ suffered the darkness so that through that judgment, we could be saved. It's the ultimate miracle. It's the ultimate miracle. Salvation through judgment. He took our place. He got everything that we deserve so that we could have everything he deserved. And, and he took our place. Jesus Christ is our true judge, our true judge, our true king, our true God who came not to bring judgment, but to bear judgment. This is the creator of the world who says what? On the cross. In John chapter 1, he went to the cross to be disintegrated for you. He became unmade on the cross. He was experiencing bodily chaos, soulful chaos, disintegration on the cross. Why? To make us whole, to integrate us to the Father again. He was forgiven so that we would be, he was forsaken so that we would be forgiven. He was rejected so that we could be accepted. That makes Christianity very unique. Unique God, unique body. Why? Every other religion, you got to work at it. You got to try hard. You got to try. You got to rely on your own efforts. But you see, if you do that, it's going to lead to disintegration. You're going to overwork and you're going to strain. You're never going to experience joy. And as a result, you're going to experience unrestless, just restlessness, unrest, the darkness and the chaos and the disintegration, the bitterness, the anxiety, the judging of other people, the uncertainties, the anxieties, the insecurities, never really knowing where you stand with God. And as a result, you're looking with other people. You're looking to other people trying to get their love and their approval and their acceptance. You're trying to get your boss's love and his approval and his acceptance. You're trying to get the, the if, uh, what is a degree? A degree is approval. A, a, a degree says you're accepted that's what you're going for you're looking for those credentials again that pathetic nature of the human condition that's what you're going to resort to that leads to disintegration and the chaos and the darkness if you believed if you believe what does the cross do it opens your eyes because if you believe that you are saved in spite of your works, your best efforts, you are saved in spite of those things. It's not like Jesus did stuff and because you were at your best, it kind of worked out. That's not what happened. You were saved in spite of your works, in spite of your record, in spite of your merit. Not because you deserved it, not because you earned it, because Jesus deserved it, because Jesus earned it for you. That's why. God saved his people through the ultimate plague of judgment on Christ on the cross. That should humble us because we didn't earn it. That should humble us. There are people in the church community who've been in the church for a while and so it's very difficult for them to admit that they don't know this. It's very difficult. I'm pleading with you. I'm pleading with you. Wake up. There are people in the church who've grown up in the church and as a result, because they've discipled other people, walked with people, prayed for people, and they're very active in, in leadership, and, and as a result, it's very difficult for them to, to admit that they are idolatrous, that they themselves have other gods, that they themselves have distanced themselves from the Father. And it's their choice. 
And what they do is, uh, so they justify what they do. You know, it's my season. It's my time. Um, And as a result, you know what happens? Little by little, because other things have become your gods, you've distanced yourselves from people. You've lived selfish lives. And what happens is over time, the disintegration starts to take hold. You become incredibly lonely. Incredibly lonely. Because you realize, I've abandoned the things that at one point I say I valued. But it's hard for you to admit that. Because to admit that is to admit what? Weakness. To admit that is to say what? I'm afraid. To admit that is to say, here's this person who's grown up in the church, who's lived the Christian life all her life, or all his life, and what happens? I've got to admit that you have something that actually I want. These people that I've helped, these people that I've prayed for, these people that I've led, that they've actually come to truths that I have yet to really experience personally in an existential way myself. Friends, is the gospel visceral to you? Is this something that leaves a visceral, visceral mark in your life? There are people who have been in and out of the church, you know, in and out, experiencing and seeing the God of judgment, and they're saying, oh, you know, I don't like this, I don't agree with this, so they reject certain truths and they accept other truths when it fits them. And in their lives, they're miserable because the disintegration and the chaos and the darkness has been really perpetuating itself for years and decades. Can the gospel be visceral for you? Can it? To say that it can't, to say, but I'm afraid, to say that, but I'm, I've, you don't know where I've been, you don't know the things that I've done, is to say that the gospel is not enough, that what Christ has done is not enough. Do you believe that Jesus suffered the ultimate plague, the full wrath of God, so that you could be healed, so that you could be restored, so you can actually have the power to distance yourself, say no more to the disintegration. And I will make a stand because I am new. Jesus says, behold, even now there's miracles. Behold, I am making all things new. That should humble us. We did nothing to earn it. Why do we obey? One, because he is the only real God. He is unique. He is singular. Two, because he designed your life. He designed creation. He is the creator of your soul. And so disobeying his design, going against his design, is like putting the wrong type of gas or the wrong tires and the wrong oil for for the life of a beautiful car that you've got. It's going to run for a while, but the disintegration will become permanent eventually. And there will be darkness. The lights just go out. Third, because Jesus is the judge. And as the judge, he bore judgment. So, you know, the first two points makes him king. We have to obey. To obey would be foolish. To disobey would be foolish. But the third reason, because he is the redeeming king, because he is the redeeming judge, to disobey, to, because he came and bore judgment for us, to disobey, you're not just trampling on a set of laws. You're trampling on his heart for you. You're trampling on his love for you. There was no law that required Jesus to come. He did it because of his love. He did it because of his love for the Father and because of his love for you. To trample on those laws, to trample on that design, is to trample on his heart. 
who loved you, came for you, died for you, will you, will the gospel become real in your life? Be intimate with God. He doesn't want to just come for you to bow down. Of course, that is what we do to kings. We bow down and worship. But what is that worship? It's love. There's this intimacy that he wants. Will you be reconciled to him today? If it doesn't shape your life towards change, if you're just feeling it, if you're just thinking about it, if you're just going to put it away and case it away in memory, meditate on it, if it's something you've got to take back and think about it, then you don't believe. You don't believe yet. The Lord may be stirring. There may be calling there, but right now you do not actively believe. You're like Pharaoh who saw and is inclined, but his heart is hard. Can the gospel break through and soften you? Let's pray.